You're listening to the Strong Towns Podcast. Hey, everybody. This is Chuck Marone with Strong Towns. Welcome back to the Strong Towns podcast. You know, I get an opportunity to travel all over the country and see a lot of very unique places and the things that they're doing. And a, a lot of times I see a lot of people with big hearts who are trying to do stuff. And sometimes I want to give them a hug or I, I want to cringe a little bit because I, I, I see people trying things and it's not what I would do, or it's not what I think needs to be done. And, and then I'll see other places and I'll see them doing things that I think I, that's really smart. And, and that's kind of in the line of what, what I would be doing. But every now and then I run into a place where I'm a little bit startled and a little bit taken aback. And, and I find something that is right in the wheelhouse of what I find to be brilliant, but like a step beyond from an execution standpoint, particularly like, you know, just really has figured something special out. Oswego, New York is one of those places, and I had the opportunity to be there this summer and to see some of the things that they are doing. I was very inspired, and I found a lot there that was quite interesting and well worth sharing. And so I have invited the executive director of the Oswego Renaissance Association, a great guy named Paul Stewart, to be on the podcast with us today, and he's on the line. Paul, welcome to the Strong Towns Podcast. Thank you very much, Chuck. Glad to be here. I'm really excited because Oswego is one of these places that on paper is very nondescript and kind of, you know, out of the way and is going to escape the attention of, you know, most of, of America, especially those who are advocating for cities. But there's a, a lot of great stuff going on there. Could we just start out by talking a little bit about Oswego itself? Can you describe the city and kind of Lay out for people where you're at and, and what the feel and flavor of the place is. Oswego uh, is a uh, what you might call a small city. Um, it's a city right now of about 18,000 people. And it, I think in many ways it uh, shares a lot in common with many small so-called post-industrial cities of its size. It was once a, uh, had a somewhat larger population. The population peaked to about 25,000. But following deindustrialization over the last several decades, that population uh, dropped by about 20% or so since about 1970. So it's not terrible in terms of population drop, but, but it's, a, it's a, a city built for 25,000, occupied by 18,000. It is uh, a port city on the shores of Lake Ontario. It's about an hour and 20 minutes north of Syracuse, New York. It has a history that goes back um, a long way, several hundred years, but in the 19th century, the late 19th century, it was booming. So we, we had an amazing port. It was said to, that it might become the next Chicago someday. But then the railroad came along and, and, and fortunes changed. And so what we are now a city of is you know a, a real large set of historic structures and Victorian-style neighborhoods and a new kind of changing economy that's been transforming over the last 30 years. We're fortunate to have um, one of the State University of New York campuses, SUNY Oswego, uh, right nearby. And we also are fortunate to have several major employers, such as the hospital, some of the, the nuclear plants, uh, Novellus, other, other employers like that. We've held our own pretty good. But uh, the job for Oswego more recently has been, how do we transition and where do we go from here in this sort of post-industrial era? It seems to me, and now correct me if you think this is not fair, but like a lot of cities in, in upstate New York, Oswego has, I want to say, seen better days. I don't want to give the impression that this is a place like in dramatic decline, but it certainly is a place where like the sheen is gone and you're in some ways in a little bit of a hanging on phase or renaissance we're going to talk about. But I think maybe looking back, a lot of it has been, you know, how do we hang on as opposed to. Yeah, let's let's talk about that. Yeah, absolutely. So there is no question that the city 
declined. And I would say actually declined since the 40s even. I think it's very, very slowly. But it particularly that decline accelerated beginning in the 1970s and then really hit in the 90s and early 2000s. I mean, by early 2000 and mid 2000, it was it was obvious, you know, what had happened. My only point was that that's not that was not unique to Oswego. I mean, the loss of residents, the decline of neighborhoods, the loss of jobs, the outmigration of population. Anybody that lives in a post-industrial city knows exactly what I'm talking about. So, yeah, there has been decline. The city had not been adapting. It had been sort of in this mindset of, well, let's just think of what we can do today. Let's wait. You know, tomorrow might be a better day. Wait in what I call the wait and hope strategy. You know, the wait and hope strategy has been one that I think um, has been an approach by prior governments and and also some of our own population for many decades. And it clearly was not working. You and I sat in the city hall at one point and looked around at all the the portraits on the wall of, of every mayor. And I, I did remark, I mean, I, I thought it was pretty, it was a very unique snapshot into the city's history. But it was also pretty clear that this city has a long history of at least visually of, of people who maybe like think similarly, right? Like people who, uh, are maybe looking to the past more than the future. To be frank, we saw a whole lineup of portraits of old guys <laughs> staring back <laughs> at us. And it, 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 it didn't give off the vibe of, you know, th- this is a place that has been on the forefront for a long time, right? Oh, right. Now I would say that that is true. I mean, it, it's a great place, and I, I do want to get into that discussion. But, but yeah, it's it's geographically somewhat more isolated than others other places, and I think there has been a long history of looking back. and And when I moved here in let's see, in in '01 into the city limits, that that's one thing I noticed was a tendency where there was a negativity that was present. There was a tendency to be uh, you know, wistful about the the old days and complain about how we can go back, and but there was very little that was forward thinking. On top of that, was I would say, you know, uh, the common problems that these uh, cities that have shrunk experience. So you'd have your typical cadre of, uh, you know, slumlord property owners that had acquired numbers of properties in various places, you know, and left the city and just owned them by a distance and let them decline. Um, and that fed into some of our problems in addition to the, the loss of employment. It was a city that looked for a long time, I think, despite occasional uh, spurts of, uh, of reinvention, was generally declining, uh, I would say, for 30, 40 straight years. I want to set it up this way because I, I think there's a lot of people listening who are going to see their own city in this story up to this point. Because like you said, it's not – this is a very common experience among cities of this type. And even if you get out West, you know, the cities that, you know, formerly used to be boom towns and now have seen better days behind them. This is a very shared kind of American experience in a lot of places. Very shared. I mean, very shared. I mean, upstate New York, I mean, the problems of Oswego are the problems of Fulton, of Syracuse, of Rochester, of Utica, of Rome, of Binghamton, of Buffalo, Jamestown, Geneva. It, it doesn't end at New York's borders, you know. And, and so, yes, I, I would think people would see this as relevant in many cities that, that have shrunk rather than expanded in the last several decades. Yeah. So amid this kind of struggle, the slow decline and, and the desire to kind of hang on, how was the Oswego Renaissance Association? Can you give us a little bit of the history of the genesis of that? What inspired it to get started? How, how did it get going? And what was kind of the initial thought behind it? Oh, yeah. I, I love this story. <laughs> um, I do, too. I hope people will understand that I'm just a regular citizen, right? <laughs> and um, it's true. Like, I mean, I'm just like I'm just like everybody else. I mean, I may run this organization, but it didn't start that way. I mean, you know, you know, me and my partner, we bought a house in the city in 2000. And actually, I bought a house in 2005. But but we really moved into the heart of the city and bought a larger 
kind of really cool house that needed a lot of work in 2008 and have been working on ever since. But, but, you know, I was really into housing rehab. I was really into just at that time, just pretty narrowly into so-called historic preservation. It just was a passion at the time. But what would happen is, you know, after the first couple of years of, of rehabbing this property, I, I kind of got my head above water and started to become part of the community more. And whether walking around or driving around the neighborhoods, and, 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 and I'd start to say, what's, what's going on here? What's the plan for these neighborhoods? What's the plan for the city? Because it seemed like there was no plan, that there had just been neighborhoods declining, blight increasing, property values stagnant or dropping, and no real plan other than for some affordable housing projects, which we can talk about later, and kind of just sort of wait and hope. And I became very concerned, very, very concerned. Uh, This was back in 2009 and 2010, when particularly I began to think there's something, this is not sustainable, because I just saw this headed over a cliff. And the interesting thing, and I hope that people can understand this also, is my initial response which I didn't realize at the time, was the classic response that most of regular people uh, will have, which is to find out what's broken, what's, what's wrong here, let's fix what's broken. And so I actually went from a person who was experiencing the joys of making a historic house beautiful and, 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 and rehabbing that to a kind of an angry person who you know, saw everything that was wrong in the community and trying to find who's responsible for this and why can't we do better. And whether it was blaming a government program or it was blaming politicians, it was always something. And I, and I really began to get more and more headed in that direction until one night I was going to present a, a white paper on some concerns I had about the decisions the city had been making. This was back in, I think, 2011 or 10. And something just told me, that there was something wrong about what I had been doing, that I was heading down a path that was, that was sapping my energy, that was not producing much change, and that was making the experience of the city for me a negative one. And I had forgotten, Chuck, the simple thing that occurred, at least in my immediate neighborhood, um, which, which eventually led to the ORA, which is when we began to invest our time and our energy and our money into our own home, then the immediate houses around us and our neighborhood began to do similar things. And I said, what, where had I gone wrong? How did I stray from that path? Let me pause and ask you a benchmark question here. I'm fascinated with this because when you're like, you know, compiling the list of things that are not working, in your mind, and you're becoming a frustrated person. At that point, before you had the, the, the epiphany about the impact that, you know, the love you showed your place had uh, to, the, to your neighbors, what were you thinking should be done at that point? Did you want the city to intervene somehow? Or you know, what were you looking for? What at the time my, my feelings were, and some of my opinions were correct. It just, the question is whether those were the first problems to solve. So um, I had the classic view of, you know, um, our community has become just a place where local community development organizations are only building affordable housing projects, which is fine and serves a need, but that by itself is not going to revitalize a community whose housing values are already in the bottom quartile of the nation and that's been losing population and wealth has been leaving unless your goal was to continue to concentrate poverty. That was one of my big concerns, you know, in the early days. Uh, Other things included why were things like code enforcement not being aggressively enforced because there would be things that would just be let go. And I thought if we could just get that code enforcement to start enforcing our building codes, our neighborhoods would would be stronger and beautiful again. Uh, That was another thing. Those two things came to mind. And, and, uh, And then, of course, there was, you know, what are they doing about the economics and job situation? But that was a little bit farther afield than my expertise. So those were sort of the initial 
you know, kinds of things, these rabbit holes I would go down to. And, and it's not to say that those things aren't important. It's not to say that an appropriate housing policy is not important. It's not to say that code enforcement is not important. But what I discovered later was that those were not the paths to revitalization. They are not. And that's what changed everything. There was this moment in time uh, where I backed away from the precipice of sort of this negative, sort of almost dependent approach, why won't someone else do this or do that, and try to figure out what is a reasonable strategy? What do other cities like ours do? What is a, what is a way we can think about this in a completely different way? And so I, like so many people, I you know did, did a lot of research online, things like that. I came across an approach uh, that was called the Healthy Neighborhoods Approach that was pioneered by a brilliant individual named David Belke, uh, who pioneered the approach uh, in the late 1990s and found out that this there was a few cities in New York, Jamestown, New York being one of them, Geneva being another one, that were employing this approach. And I, and I ended up seeing some literature and materials from what was going on in these two other upstate New York cities, and I was blown away. I was seeing things that I knew had to happen here, that this was an approach that turned everything on its head, and it was clearly working in these two cities. One thing led to another, and I contacted some of the uh, the, the revitalization sort of uh, gurus in those cities and got in touch with a consulting firm uh, led by a man named Charles Buki, who runs a, a firm that's called CZB out of Alexandria, Virginia. And they agreed to do a study of our city to sort of do a healthy neighborhoods uh, model for Oswego. To try to keep this bulleted, we were fortunate that we had a foundation, the Richard S. Shinneman Foundation, that I was able to approach and convince at the time that the then executive director, Lauren Pastel, that this was a very important thing uh, that we needed to look at uh, for the city of Oswego. I gave the outlines of the basic ideas. They were excited and they took a big risk and granted us about $50,000 initially to do an analysis of our city to see if there was a way that we could restore our neighborhoods. So one thing led to another, and we hired uh, this firm, and I'm just going to get to the bullets of what happened. They spent a year in this city, and, and they asked me to gather together you know, 10 to 15 neighbors from all over the city to do a self-analysis of our city. And what they found in that year through collaborative work with us and mapping the neighborhoods and looking at housing conditions and all sorts of things that you could read about in our neighborhood revitalization plan, they came on some, a handful of very important points. Number one, that the city of Oswego's decline was a self-inflicted wound and that is solvable and reversible. Number two, that the problems that Oswego had have been misdiagnosed um, for decades in that we have been spending all our time trying to fix what's broken rather than trying to build on what we have that is working. Number three, that the resources to revitalize our city are not going to be found in government programs, are not going to be found in federal grants, but actually are there in the residents and homeowners and renters and property owners themselves. In fact, what they found out is that we have neighborhoods that were in decline, and if you drove through them, they would look like uh, no one cares here and no one can afford to keep these homes up. But in fact, based upon analysis that was done of our city, that every year, collectively, Oswegonians withhold about $23 million in money that they could afford to invest in their homes and in their blocks and in their communities, but which they hadn't been. And the question was, why not? And the critical discovery was, for lack of a better word, essentially a snowball loss of confidence in our neighborhoods. And it works like this. Some crisis happened long ago. Some jobs were lost and people left and people began to lose faith in their community. 
So people start to think they're not going to be staying around anymore. So your neighbor down the street decides, I'm not going to paint my house this year because I'm not going to be here much longer. The community's going downhill. The next neighbor across the street reads those signals and sees what's going on and starts to question their wisdom in investing in their property and in their house or engaging even in their community and starts to withdraw. And each one of us starts to send a signal to the next person that we are essentially, that we were pulling out of our own neighborhoods, out of our own cities, both financially, but also socially and economically. That in itself becomes a self-perpetuating cycle. It's called the disinvestment cycle. As people withdraw investment, conditions worsen. As condition worsens, confidence in the housing market, confidence in your neighborhood drops, which causes further uh, disinvestment, which causes further erosion of condition, which further reduces confidence, and it just keeps cycling. And they convinced us that we were basically a community engaged in a bank run on confidence. The last and most important thing was that we were shown that we have the capacity to revitalize our neighborhoods and communities, but we just don't have the confidence. So how do we leverage that confidence? And so there's a lot of different ways that we, we've done that, but the results have been pretty remarkable. I find the idea of a bank run on confidence to be a fascinating expression. And it really describes so many cities. And I want to run something by you quick before we pivot to what you did and how you put this into place. A lot of places where I see this run on confidence, and I would say, you know, my city suffers from this big time. You see the, and I'm going to, for lack of a better term, call them like the chamber of commerce group, the, the rah-rah people uh, who stand up and say, hey, you know, don't be negative, Chuck. Don't get down on things. Go out and buy local. Go out and, you know, we, we should all be, uh, it, they, they, they basically try to almost like gloss over the, the problems with like a rah-rah community spirit. Don't talk bad about the family kind of thing. Did you experience that? Is that something that is a problem in and of itself, like a response problem? Okay. I know. I think it's a, that's a great observation. So I think you're absolutely right. When someone just says to you, rah, rah, stop being negative, rah, rah, like, you know, buy local, that's not going to work. And here's why. And I should have said this earlier. In order for people to feel enthused about their their neighborhood or their city. They have to see the potential for a future. And and we call this healthy neighborhoods. In other words, a healthy neighborhood is like a healthy city. How do you define that? It's a place where it makes sense to invest your time and your energy and your money. And if it doesn't make sense, people won't do it. And that's the critical component of how we approach things. You can't tell people to just be enthusiastic if in their guts it doesn't make sense to them to continue to uh, engage in their community and invest in the broad sense of the word. So what has to happen is you have to change conditions and do work with residents so that it begins to make sense to do those things. Really, I can't speak to our local chamber of commerce. That I, that I can't speak to at all. But many, many times... Um, some of the biggest champions of just being positive for the sake of being positive are not the individuals who are knee deep in the circumstances. Okay. Um, (laughs) Yeah. You you know what I mean? They're they're living out on the edge of the city or in a suburban home, not understanding why people are so bitter who live inside the community. And, and that's a big problem. It's a big problem, whether it's uh, um, for politicians, for anybody who's involved in decision-making capacities, because there's a lot to be said for for being in a community and understanding it at a very deep level what happens at street level and that's something that i do because i live right in the community you know in a neighborhood with a full range of incomes from poverty to to um, some degree of wealth so the goal here then is not to be a cheerleader that's the misunderstanding because that's ephemeral the goal is to change things so it makes sense for people to choose to invest their time, energy, or money, choose to live in the city rather than being compelled to or, or bribed to or things like that. Let me, let me try to explain sort of the way to approach this. What we were instructed to do and what we eventually did is we would find like-minded 
residents throughout the city of Oswego who had the same concerns we had. Do you care about your neighborhood? Are you concerned about where it's going? What do you want it to become? And that's, it's not hard to find those individuals. And especially you can find them because there will also be the individuals who still will be taking risks, will still be investing in their homes, will still be trying to make their community strong, even if in many times, if you look around them, it doesn't make sense. It doesn't seem to make sense at first. So we'd gather, I think originally it was about 12 or so different, uh, what we call, what would, would then become our future block leaders. And we had this discussion. And what, what we came to was basically to say, um, with the help of the Shinneman Foundation and Pathfinder Bank and SUNY Oswego and several local uh, corporations, we, we're going to put together some financial resources but we're going to have you, the neighbors, lead these projects uh, to begin bringing your neighborhoods in the direction you want. And so the best way to, to describe this, I, I think, is just to tell you, give you an example and to tell you how it works. So we would describe the healthy neighborhood approach to our, to our neighbors throughout the city, get these 10 to 12 different leaders, and we would start and say this, okay, here's the first year. Here's what we'd like to do. You as a block leader, we want you to go around to the, the neighbors on your block and get them together in a group and say, look, with the support of the ORA, that's the Oswego Renaissance Association, uh, we're going to match you dollar for dollar for every in home improvement exterior investment you make in your home or your property, um, as long as it's visible to the neighborhood. And we're going to match it dollar for dollar up to the first thousand. So you you could spend fifty dollars and 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 you'll get twenty five back. You could spend a thousand dollars, you'll get five hundred back. You could spend two thousand, you get you get a thousand back. You know it's a one to one. And what would happen is once everybody got together as neighbors and saw that everybody else wanted the same kinds of things. Everybody realized that collectively we can decide the fate of our blocks and our neighborhoods. And so um, in our first year, we got, I think it was, uh, we started with 13 different uh, streets and different blocks in the city, about 90 or so homeowners. And we had about $81,000 in the so-called block challenge grants that went out so that neighbors would improve their homes and do other things like improve the streets, plant trees, have block parties, you name it. In that single year, that $81,000 in small individual grants to homeowners yielded 315000 in investments in just about six to nine months. In just that time, it became a buzz all around the city. And in the following year, uh, we got 17 different street clusters involved, 144 homes or so. We had about $130,000 in what we call Block Challenger Pride Grants to these homeowners and property owners. And in that year, we leveraged $580,000 in investments by the end of this year, we will have expanded and we'll reach about 1.5 million in just about about 30 to 36 months. It's not just the money, though. Uh, it's, it's everything that goes around it. Not only have the neighborhoods been remarkably changing, starting with small investments, but those investments build and build. The social fabric of these neighborhoods has been changing. People are excited to, to be living where they're living. They're hosting events in their neighborhoods like Porch Fest, which is where there's musicians on every porch from all over the city come to this neighborhood and, and have musical events. People are having block parties, neighborhood barbecues and picnics. But importantly, it's moving the needle on the whole direction of neighborhoods. In one target area in particular, in, in just the last 24 months, we've had nine former rental and or non-family quasi-distressed properties be bought by single families to rehab to be an owner-occupied house. That was never happening before. And not only is that happening, but, but people are beautifying their homes, investing in their homes, investing in the streets in a way that people have not seen before. And the, the ripple effects of that 
are a renewed confidence in the outlook for their neighborhoods. And eventually what happens, Chuck, it just starts to take off. And the, the goal becomes we know we're successful when we get to the point where uh, this just self-sustains like a healthy neighborhood. People naturally buy into these neighborhoods because it makes sense, because the residents there care, they're confident about the future, and things are moving forward. And we're already seeing that happening in, in the blocks we're working on, and we are expanding uh, from the zones we first started. I can hear people who are listening to this right now say, well, you know, my city has facade grant programs, and my city, you know, da 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 I want you to elaborate a little bit on what I thought was one of the more unique things here. And that was the fact that you, you require a certain amount of buy-in on a block or, or in an area, or you won't go there. Um, this can't just be like the, the one-off guy over here and the one-off guy over here. You talk about that and, and why that's so important. So to answer your question about the difference between what we do and traditional community development approaches, the traditional community development approach will say, okay, we've got money. We're going to come to your neighborhood and fix stuff if you qualify. Okay. And so what happens is um, they will typically find people that are income qualified and do, and with some restrictions, work on that house and make, make, make that house or that neighborhood better, maybe build some affordable housing, whatever. But the neighbors themselves are never leveraged. They're never engaged. Their skin is not in the game. Okay. And usually those kinds of projects are done scattershot. Okay. Well, there's a house that qualifies over here. And then in some other neighborhood, oh, this house qualifies. Let's do it there. That is your typical community development approach. It's been done for 40 years. I'm here to tell you it fails. It fails because it does not achieve a critical mass of neighbors that are working together in a geographically concentrated area to build their community and build value. So that's what we do. We don't just give out grants willy-nilly. First of all, we had to we had to find four areas in the city that had, I would say, still enough sufficient strength that you could leverage from to build off of. The traditional community development approach will say, well, where can we go in a city that has the most need, where things are most broken? Let's fix what's broken. We, we had to approach it differently and say, where is the place where we can actually leverage enough confidence that the neighborhood can improve, and then we can build out from those stronger areas. And it turns out those are so-called middle markets. Those are areas in a city that are not your worst areas. And, of course, they're not your best areas either because the best areas don't need investment like yeah. in the way that there's we not the, There's not the bank run on confidence there. No, no, no. These are the middle market neighborhoods. These are the neighborhoods where you still have a critical mass of property owners that still care, but they're losing confidence because they see erosion headed their way or blights already starting to infiltrate their neighborhood. That's the place where you intervene. That's the place because if you don't intervene now, the price of doing it now will pale in comparison to what will happen after that neighborhood tips. So while people are spending all their time in the most distressed areas, usually with too few dollars, Chuck, they're failing to get ahead of it and invest where the resources you have can actually work. And then once you stabilize and grow that neighborhood, you can grow outwards and you're in a better position to, to get to the more blighted area. So, so the, the first point speaks to strategy and where you start. We do a market-oriented approach. The second point is about resident buy-in, critical piece. We just don't give out grants. What we say is we're willing to work with your neighborhood, but you have to get a minimum of at least five homeowners on your block to participate forming a cluster. And actually, because the grants are competitive, we really are looking at 10 to 15 households on that block, on that single street to that block to, to join together and make a mutual commitment to each other as neighbors that we are all in again and we are going to work to revitalize our neighborhood. So the money that we use, these small matching grants to each homeowner is really the, it's a small incentive, but it's really the excuse that gets them together to discuss what can we do. And when they do that, they really, re that's when they realize, oh my God, I've got 10 neighbors at this table right now. And then you start threading that social connection back together. You realize you have the same concerns. People feel more confident to stay and invest because they realize their other neighbors want the same thing. It's huge. It's absolutely huge. That's what then leads to 
what I was saying earlier, all those investment dollars, the investment dollars are great, but they're just also a way of measuring how engaged, one way of measuring how, how confident people are in investing in their neighborhoods. So typically, um, we would get 10, 12, 15 households on a block, we still do, to invest and work together. And we have seen literally blocks go from where I remember one person telling me, I don't think you're going to be able to get even five people on this block to 14 different houses on a 17 house block doing this uh, complete house repaints, historic makeovers, uh, everything's from small to large. And then every year thereafter, we have something for the block to do. But every time we do it, they have to have a minimum number of neighbors and they have to have their own skin in the game, whether it's their time, their energy or their money. So it really comes from them, Chuck. We facilitate. We facilitate it. I have to say, in walking around these neighborhoods with you, and, and we we spent quite a bit of time there walking around, and it was it was interesting because you know you, coming in, I, I didn't know what to expect. I mean, every every time I go to a community, they're very proud of some things and and not proud of others, and they they want to show me around and what have you, and you know I that's part of the deal, and I, I enjoy that. But I have to say you and I met for breakfast and then you said, we got to go walk this. And I thought, okay, you know, here we go. And wow, I was blown away and not blown away because of the opulence, because it's not opulent. I was blown away because these were neighborhoods that in all ways that would be on like a piece of paper were very, very ordinary, but from all outward, like curb appeal, you could see, and I'm going to use the term love again. I mean, you could see the love and the passion that people had for the neighborhood expressed in things like the little plants that they had out, the way the, the facades were painted, the contrast there was every now and then you'd run into a house that hadn't got there yet, right? Or you'd say, this is a block we're kind of working on and we're hoping that it expands over to here. And you could tell because, you know, that was kind of like the control group, right? It was just a massive contrast between the two. I'm trying to, to paint people a picture here of an approach that really, for, for me, you're taking pennies and just working miracles out here. Like, am I painting a fair picture of, of the neighborhoods? I think, yeah. Um, I, I think that what we are doing is we are, because we, we're getting at the right, we're getting right into the, the real governing variables of what is going on, you find out you can really revitalize neighborhoods at a far, far lower cost than people think. This this is just gets to me every time. People don't understand this. They think that you got to have hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars. I mean, I've seen community development approaches where they will spend seventy thousand dollars to rehab one distressed property to sell to an income qualified family, one house, Chuck. Yeah. We we can Do take whole, seventy thousand dollars right. <laughs> and, uh, and and like and, and leverage the confidence and finances of of neighbors throughout the block and turn that into two hundred and fifteen thousand dollars. And and I don't want I don't want the listeners to misunderstand. I really don't care about the money. I use those numbers because it, it it's a way of expressing a metric, but it's that you are seeing rational homeowners conclude that their neighborhood is healthy and it makes sense for them to re-engage. And it's, it's, it's financial, it's social, it's time, it's energy. And all those things combined are what I mean by investment. And that's why you can take a block where in 2013, all that was happening is slow conversion to rentals. Nobody knew each other. Uh, the street was running down to suddenly in the course of just two years, um, the homeowners know each other on the block a lot better. They're investing in their homes. They care and they take pride in their homes. New people have moved in. The values of the homes are now stable or rising rather than declining, okay, which is a healthy thing. And that's another conversation, but that's a, that's a healthy thing. And that people can be confident that they can stay and really, to be honest, their biggest investment is is protected and that and because they know their neighbors they're in a great community next thing you know it's garage sales next thing you know it's historic house tours next thing you know it's 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 community musical events and block parties those simple things turn out to be 
the seeds to revitalization that everybody misses because in, in, in planting those seeds, you unlock the financial and social capital of every resident on that block, every resident. I, I've got a couple questions left for you. I want to ask this one that's going to be a challenge. I'm going to give you a critique because I want you to respond to it because I think other people will have it. The critique would be, okay, this sounds nice, but what about these poor neighborhoods? You know, what, what about these places that are much more distressed than the neighborhoods you're focusing in? Do you, do you just turn your back on them? Why, why, why are we not helping the poorest of the poor here? No. Okay. Uh, That's a great question. Um, I have several answers to that. First of all, I want to point out that the neighborhoods we work in are not wealthy neighborhoods. They're just not the most distressed. So we have in the neighborhoods we work everything from people with well-paying jobs to blue-collar jobs to, I would say, low-income families. We are in truly economically integrated neighborhoods. These are what I mean by the middle neighborhoods. They are the most economically diverse you will get. They are not all poor. They are not all wealthy. So, so th- that I want to be clear about. This, the second part of it is what do you do about the most distressed neighborhoods? So let me, let me um, go after the premise of your question. A Please. Bit. The strategy that, that typical approaches have been using in a place like Oswego for about 40 years are to say your community is distressed you have an affordable housing problem. We have dollars from, from the state or the feds to make affordable housing investments, and we're going to do that in your neighborhoods and, 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 and in typically in the strategy I described earlier. My first question I have to that strategy is now after 40 years, how's that been working out for you? Okay. The city declined decade over decade despite those strategies. Okay, that speaks to the second point, which is there has been a confusion between affordable housing, which is an important thing, and revitalization, and the two are distinct things. Affordable housing serves the need of financially qualified families or people that have trouble affording homes. That serves a social need, but that does not revitalize a neighborhood. To revitalize a neighborhood, you need all income levels involved. You want them moving into the neighborhoods. You want a diverse spectrum. So that's point two. Point three is the amount of resources that are typically available to intervene in these cities is nowhere near the amount that you you have to turn some of the most blighted neighborhoods around in the near term. Nowhere near. I just told you $70,000 for a single house, right? So so try to do that on three houses. Try to do that on a whole block. You're going to need a big check. And I'm here to tell you, we don't have a big enough check. So what we have to do is sort of like triage. We decide where can we, where can we intervene and be successful with the limited resources we have And then once we are successful and stabilize and grow these neighborhoods, then we come in a better position to spread outward and start to transition into into the more and more difficult blocks. So it's not a question of whether or not to work with the most distressed blocks. The question is, where is your starting point? And that's where the build on strength strategy is. Build where you can get a market foothold. Build where you can have a critical mass of homeowners that want to invest. And as you do that, you are, you are inching inwards towards the more and more needy neighborhoods. We have a budget of about $175,000 a year. We could turn around two, maybe three severely distressed houses in in a very distressed neighborhood, and it would still be surrounded by a bunch of other distressed houses, and and it's unlikely we would find buyers. But with that 175,000, we can turn into um, 550, 600,000 in a so-called middle market where we have some strength and some distress, and then turn that into just strength and strength then we can begin expanding. And that's what we've been doing. We have been pushing outward. So it's just about order. The last thing I would say is that where we work, um, 
all income levels can participate. So when we have granting programs, they're matching programs, but people do not need to spend huge amounts of dollars. It's participation that matters. So that if one family wants to spend thousands of dollars to put in their new porch, that's fine, but the family next door may spend $50 on flowers and get reimbursed for 25 The next neighbor may spend $5. That doesn't matter. It's about getting their skin in the game with the neighbors. I think you'll be able to answer this one. I, I don't want to get you in trouble. Oh, do you? <laughs> no, we, we met with some very good government officials and, and I think had some great conversations. But I think you've painted a very compelling portrait of how, as you describe yourself, a regular guy can, you know, go about engaging with their neighbors to try to do something amazing. I'd like you to talk a little bit about how local government can help and maybe can hinder this kind of a thing. If there's people out there who are saying, you know, I, I'd like to get this going. N New York is a state that is, in my opinion, plagued with way too much, you know, we've got a problem, let's run to the government and, and get a solution. And you wind up with, you know, a huge program out of Albany and a thousand pages of regulation and then nothing really changes. What would your advice be to either governments or, or people who are of that bent in terms of how government can either help or help by staying out of the way? Yeah, that's a fair question. Um, any city that that approaches this um, has choices that they can make um, that can be beneficial to um, a nonprofit organization like the ORA or, or a similar organization. It first involves having the city make the, a decision, a city government make a decision that the neighborhoods in the city are an asset that they want to uh, protect and grow. That's a critical decision right there. Some of that decision comes from understanding the relationship between the the uh, the health of and, and income levels of your residents and how that impacts your local economy because there's a huge relationship there. Um, so some of it's understanding. And once that's understood, what can cities do? Well, one of them is is to um, essentially find ways to facilitate and 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 do everything it can to build the residents' confidence to keep going. The best way to do it is where local citizens are investing, with a nonprofit or without, find where those places are where people are investing and build on those investments. Find those blocks where people are investing in their homes, where they're having their block parties, where they're, they're wanting services, and double down on them. Because they are the ones that, as a group, are going to really turn those blocks around. And that doubling down can be simple things, Chuck. That can be, that can be we're going to use our tree budget. We're going to plant trees in this area this year. It can mean we have a sidewalk budget that's very limited. Where do we spend it? Let's spend it in the same area where other revitalization activities are occurring. In other words, double down and place bets where everyone else is placing the bet. Code enforcement does have a role to play. Um, it's important to understand, though, that code enforcement by itself is not going to revitalize a neighborhood. Very common misunderstanding. Typical um, building codes, even exterior building maintenance codes, can compel an owner to make the property minimally habitable. I mean, boarded up windows are code. <laughs> um, um, yeah. you know, the, the, so, so code is not going to, uh, people need to understand this. code is not going to express pride and confidence. It's not going to bring a neighborhood back that requires confidence and investment from, from individuals. However, what it can do is it can prevent marginal properties from becoming severely bad. It can create a floor in the market in that neighborhood that says, even though there might be a house up the street that's not well, there is a level to which we will not let it go below. And that's an important thing um, when you're talking about neighbors as quote-unquote investors. They have to know that there's a level to which a, a, a bad property won't fall below so that they can be confident to continue to invest. So in that way, code enforcement can play a role. Code enforcement can also be involved by talking to the residents who often know more about what's going on than they do when they drive by in their vehicle. So that's another. So code enforcement does have a role if it's appropriately applied and understood in terms of its uh, its impact. 
The other thing um, in, is in terms of police, traditional community policing, getting police out on foot so that they are part of the community and know neighbors rather than driving by in patrol cars is huge. If they know the neighbors, they will understand what's going on at the block at a deeper level. And uh, we have a great police department in the city of Oswego that will proactively deal with things because the neighbors have given them a heads up long before it becomes a problem. So people out on foot, traditional community policing is great. The one part where I, I think there might be some debate with the strong towns uh, folks is, uh, is zoning. I know that a lot of strong towns uh, adherents are critical of zoning, but zoning has a place, especially in a weak market. In a weak market like Oswego or a similar city, zoning can make the difference between whether or not someone decides to knock down a house and put a parking lot next to your house. Zoning can make the difference between whether or not a slumlord that lives outside of town can convert a lawn and completely pave over it on all sides to pack as many cars in as he can, um, just destroying the block. You know, whether or not someone puts in an auto-oriented business in the middle of a residential neighborhood, that's all zoning. So zoning has a role to play it's just the question of, you know, what's its goal? And, and if zoning is oriented towards protecting uh, neighborhoods and their vibrancy and keeping them as places for people rather than as places for out-of-town slumlords to just generate income or rather than auto-oriented uh, conversions of houses into um, slum apartments with a parking lot around them, then zoning has a place. And I really like what you said when you're out here in that – you know, at the least, we need to be able to say, here are the things we will not allow, like a drive through <laughs> next to a neighbor, which you saw one y when you yeah, were we out did. here. Yeah, uh -huh. yeah. Yeah, that was that was in the 60s even. Someone put like what was a credit union or some bank or insurance company right next to a neighborhood. So there was literally a drive through in the middle of a residential neighborhood. Um, fortunately, it never took off and, and it's always been a home to many small businesses. And right, right. We had a great time. I would love to come back to Oswego. This was a, a full day and a really fun day. And I felt like I learned a lot, and I also felt like people there were – there was a general feeling of being enthused about the community and, and the future of the community. There's a lot of people I meet throughout the year, and I, I really appreciate the time they give me. You're one of the handful of people this year that I'm going to say I'm a, I'm a much better person having met you and, and been able to spend the time learning about your city because the work you are doing for me – is incredibly inspiring. It's very inspiring. So I, I just want to say thank you, Paul. It's fantastic. Well, I, I'm glad. And, and my response would be not only am I glad, but I want to convince you to do that in Brainerd, to figure out a way to, to engage the Healthy Neighborhoods approach in Brainerd. I'd love to have taken credit for this approach, but it was not my idea. As I said, it was started by David Belke, and there's plenty of literature on it online. The last point I'll make is um, to give you a sense of how this runs. As you probably heard, the, in New York State, there was just a bunch of downtown revitalization awards given out uh, by the federal by the state government, Andrew Cuomo's office. And there are three upstate New York cities that are engaged in the healthy neighborhood approach that we use, Oswego, Geneva, and Jamestown. And all three got uh, the 10 million downtown revitalization grants. All three were winners. So we're going to get rid of that strode um, that you got? <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm so, yeah, I really want to, we, we, we must do something about that strode. And, I, and I'm telling you, I'm so glad that you came out here because <laughs> I just wanted to move the needle in people's thoughts. And right now, I do know that um, the, the, the mayor and our DPW are going to be doing a traffic calming experiment with narrowing the lanes and possibly some planters on Seneca Street. And I think the, to do it in a safe place like that first, and when they see the results, I think we might be encouraged to be more courageous and deal with 104, so uh, our main our main strode to through the city. God Chuck, what a stupid idea that was back then. I know. Then. It, it was so much fun. 
to be able to point. Because when you live in a city, everything around you sometimes turns into just background noise and you have an eye for it. And so it agitated you. But, you know, for other people who maybe don't have an eye for it, they, they don't see things like a five lane bridge where there's a center turn lane on the bridge with arrows. It's fun to point those out to people because when you show it to them and they say, well, okay, why do you have arrows on your center turn lane on your bridge? Like, why do you have a center turn lane on your bridge? And then why do you even have like arrows? Like you routinely have people who like, you know, drive perpendicular off your bridge. Um, (laughs) you know, no, you, you just, you just have lazy engineers, right? Yeah. Well, you know, you know what, you know what the funny story is, Chuck, is there is a very, fundamental thread that ties together your and others' perspective on Strode's and the Healthy Neighborhoods approach and everything that we're doing and everything that Strong Towns is doing. And you know what what I've discovered it's really about? It's a realization that our communities have forgotten to attend to their most important stakeholders, and that's the people that live in them. And and that is the story behind Strode's. It's the story behind declining neighborhoods. It's the story behind mega projects when you still can't paint a crosswalk. It's all about deciding who are the people that we serve. Yeah, it's it's systems over people in a lot of ways. And and I go back twenty years, and and I was a pretty like anti government kind of person. I, I found myself moderating on that a lot in recent years. Largely because I've seen people who were kind of reflexively pro-government kind of meet me halfway with, okay, yeah, <laughs> we're too much about systems and programs and, and not enough about people, yep. right? Yep. And the other, the, other, the other part of it is, though, also, you know, on the other hand, residents really need to understand that they get the city that they deserve. And that, that's the other part of it. And, and this is a very hard conversation to have. But when you – keep electing, if you elect people that keep making the same old decisions, you get what you, you vote for. And, and I'm not making a comment about a Swiegel. I'm making a comment in general. Residents need to understand that they have to become a voice. And the way to do that is to organize, center around doing positive things, but, but, the, but they're going to have to engage if they want change, because I'm telling you, it's not going to come, you know, that old, uh, without them doing it. What's that Lorax oh, yeah. from uh, Dr. Seuss? Unless someone like you carries, carries a whole, a whole awful lot, lot, it's not going to get better. It's not. It's not. Mm-hmm. Always got a little misty eyed when I read that one to the kids, because, you know, that, that's a, it's a school book lesson that we believe when we're eight. And then we become, you know, acclimated to the world and lose it. And I think that's what, you know, to me is inspiring about you. It's inspiring about, you know, some of the neighborhoods in Memphis that I've been able to work with. It, there are pockets of places around the country where they still hold that value and say, hey, this is our city. No one's going to come fix it for us. Let's let's do this. That's so fundamental. If there's that is the most, that is the biggest challenge. So for us, it starts to get neighbors to understand, hey, it's our block. Let's, let's fix it, right? And, and then you can move the needle to, to it's, it's, our, it's our city. I want to know where people can, can get a hold of you. I know online, you've got Oswego NY online, Oswego, New York. It's O-S-W-E-G-O. I say Oswego because that's how Minnesotans would say it. Oswego, New York, online.com. Is there another place where it would be good for people to get a hold of you? There's email addresses there, um, which is uh, Oswego Renaissance at gmail.com. All one word, right? And you can find that email um, uh, on our website, but you can also look us up on Facebook at Oswego Renaissance. You were kind enough to invite me to come to your community to share ideas about mine. I would love to find a way uh, in 2017 to get you to Brainerd to share some experiences from yours. Are you up for that? I'm there. I would love it. Let's make it happen. I'm there. I'll fly out. I'm there. (laughs) Paul, I'm not joking. We'll make it happen, okay? I'm there. We're going to have an election and have some some new exciting people. And I I think that uh, this city and, and others around the country could learn a lot from the work you've done and, and the experience you've had doing it. So let's make it happen. Thanks so much. Thank you, Chuck. 
Yep. And thanks, everybody, for listening. Keep doing what you can to build strong towns. Take care. We need your help. If you think the Strong Towns message is important, don't keep it to yourself. Pass it on. You can get more information and sign up to be a member of Strong Towns at strongtowns.org. Drastic times require what? Drastic measures, yes! Who said that? They know that America's one big pothole right now. Bill, 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 Bill. That's the story. Chuck Marone, this has been fascinating. Who made the city? I like you. I like your vision of the of the world. The United Nations Earth Summit Agenda 21. Yeah.